Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with coach, author, and gym owner, Mike Boyle. Thanks for tuning in to episode 216 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So absolutely delighted to get Mike Boyle on the podcast for a part two. So long overdue is ridiculous. I love speaking to Mike. It's always so honest, open, dialogue's fantastic, always a great chat. So this was born out of a rant that Mike and many, many other strength and conditioning coaches had had on Twitter about the Chelsea manager, um, his comments around weight training or strength training and doesn't have his guys lifting weights because he doesn't see guys on the field running around with weights on the um, in the game, which is just ridiculous. It, comes, it, it turns out that they do actually do some strength training at Chelsea. I've no idea whether they do or they don't, Not up to, nothing to do with me, but it was great to have a chat around this subject uh, as well as a couple of other issues and topics that um, that we'd, uh, we'd arrange. So as well as the chat around Sari's comments, we discussed the rise of the trap bar deadlift and the trap bar jump, which is a really interesting chat of why Mike uses the trap bar jump now instead of um, instead of a couple of other lifts lifts so it's really interesting his transition and his coming around to the that way of thinking and also born out of the back of the Sari discussion around dealing with coaches that don't have the same philosophy as you and uh, just dealing with them difficult situations that a lot of coaches will come across um, and specifically highlighted in this scenario with the Chelsea manager so really interesting chat with Mike which I'm sure you'll enjoy. Sometimes now there's this big push that you have these people that are kind of directors of performance, but a lot of times those guys are PhDs and they're tech people or they're research people. And the reality is we are in the people business. Coaching is a people business. It is not a technology business. And I think when you try to look at it and think this isn't kind of robotics, this isn't Amazon where we can replace everybody picking the stuff off the shelves with robots. We still need really, really good people who can interact with really talented people, particularly in the professional sports world. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics, the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can, I mean, you can also schedule a demo and follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. This episode of the Pace Performance Podcast is also sponsored by iMeasureU, who are a world-leading inertial sensor and software platform which is able to quantify body movement and workload metrics in the field. So iMeasureU is used by leading biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb 
inertial data in the field. So iMeasureU recently released IMU Step, which is a dual sensor and app solution for lower limb load monitoring and has been used successfully by practitioners to optimize return to play for running base sports predominantly. So unlike GPS, IMU Step focuses on lower limb musculoskeletal load and works via two really small synchronized high frequency tibial worn sensors. And these sensors can quantify three dimensional force of every step an athlete takes, precise left and right limb load asymmetry and cumulative bone load. So iMeasureU was founded by leading biomechanist Dr. Tor Bazir and was acquired by Vicon last year in 2017. So iMeasureU works with military, Olympic, pro and collegiate coaches and counts the Australian Institute of Sport, uh, Philadelphia 76ers and Harvard University as some of their clients. So if you'd like to get to know a little bit more about iMeasureU, head over to the website which is iMeasureU.com or follow them on Twitter at iMeasureU. So without further ado, over to the episode with Mike Boyle. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So I'm absolutely delighted to get on Mike Boyle for a part two. Can you believe it was It was 2016? So it was over two years ago that we had our first chat. So thanks for agreeing to come on again. And uh, welcome to the podcast for a part two, Mike. Well, thank you. That was 2016? I believe so. Wow. I mean, yes. Knowing the way things work, you're probably absolutely right. I just, <laughs> I feel like that guy with the page is blowing off of the calendar in front of him. So it's very possible. Yes. Exactly. Yeah, I'm, I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure it was. I'll double check, but I'm pretty sure when I looked at the day, it was 2016. Probably the back end of 2016, but even still, yeah, too long ago. Um, so anyone that doesn't know who you are, I just want to give us a little bit of a, a rundown on your history and, and where, you've, uh, where you've ended up and what you're doing now. Uh, history, I am, I guess I would call myself a first generation strength and conditioning coach. I'm one of these guys who started, uh, before it was a job and before people got paid. I mean, I believe my 37th year of doing this, I am 59 years old. I've been coaching either at the college level or at the professional level since I was 22. I got right out of school and started coaching in college. Uh, and I spent, 10 years working in the American college system and in the NHL, again, at a time when they weren't paying full-time strength and conditioning coaches. So I worked for the Bruins from 91 to 99, and I opened my own business at the same time in 97. My wife told me I needed to come to my senses in 99 and said, you need to quit one. (laughs) So I quit the Bruins and kept working at Boston University, then exclusively with ice hockey. So I think most people would view me as an ice hockey person, but... The reality is I've, we've worked with New England Revolution. We've worked with, um, I got, I can't think, Boston Breakers, which was the women's MLS team. I spent a year with the LA Galaxy. I spent a year with our women's Olympic soccer team in 04 when they won the gold medal in Athens. Uh, so I've, I've literally probably been involved in just about every sport you can speak of, from judo to gymnastics to wrestling to American football, your football. And then obviously, as I said, people probably recognize me as he's a hockey guy. I've never, the interesting thing about that is I've never played in a hockey game. So, Just, that obviously hasn't, hasn't affected you. No, you get, I don't. Do you get any, you get any abuse from the guys? All. And that's where it's funny. That's, uh, we were talking more uh, soccer, and it's amazing, but uh, it affects the people that it wants to affect. It affects people who want to say that because you didn't play the game, you don't understand. And to me, 
I don't, I don't think that's at all valid. I had a talk, conversation with someone the other day and I said, well, I've watched a thousand hockey games at least between the professional level and the collegiate level. So I've seen a lot of hockey, although I never played it. And, and I think history is filled with people who were great coaches who were never great players or in some cases never played at all. My father was a, a championship basketball coach and never played basketball, played college football. So I've I come from a long line of pretenders, I guess. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, uh, no, not only were you one of the like you say first generation coaches before everyone's getting paid, or some people were getting paid. Um, you were one of the first to start the website with the forum and the content and the you know videos and articles and that type of thing. What was the thinking behind that at the start? Was that just sharing your you know, wanted to communicate what you thought about certain subjects. What was the what was the vision there? The vision, it's actually really interesting. So there was a guy named Ryan Lee who started a website called sportspecific.com. And Ryan started to do some talks on the Perform Better Tour, just talking about sort of the internet and social media and what was going to happen kind of in the future. And one of the things that he said is, you need to get a website. And so I said, okay, I'll, okay I started, I went and I got – michaelboyle.biz because michaelboyle.com was taken by a chef in Denver. That's what I remember. <laughs> when was this? What and year was this? Was at the time when the Charlie Francis forum was getting really big. And one of the kids that worked for me who was very tech savvy was helping me actually, this is how long ago it was. He was helping me convert my VHS videos to digital so I could get them on my computer because I had tons of video but it was all VHS and he started saying, Oh, I can take this and download it and break it up into clips. And I had really had no idea what he was talking about, but I paid him to do it. And then he said, we should start a forum on your website because forums are really big right now. And so I, I've been an early adopter all along. And in lots of cases, not really having any idea what I was truly doing, just sort of stumbling my way through. And I, as I said, I stumbled into websites and blogs and membership sites and, and all these things. And I think people think sometimes that I'm really smart. And the reality is that I've just been very willing to take chances and to do things. I think sometimes you just got to do stuff. You can't be worried about it, particularly when you realize that, okay, start a website. Is there any negative to that? No. All right. Why shouldn't I do it? No reason. Okay. Let's do it. Do it. <laughs> and, and I think with so many things, I've done that same sort of thing. Okay, we should have a forum. Hey, that'd be cool. We can start. People can answer questions. I'd like that forum uh, is where I met Dave Tenney, where I met Patrick Ward, where I met all these really smart guys because there were all these people out there kind of looking for places to talk and just happened to stumble into that. So we ended up with all of these kind of really smart people who gravitated to this old michaelboyle.biz site, which eventually I eventually bought Ryan Lee's sportspecific.com site from him and then that became strengthcoach.com and so again I appear to be very progressive when I'm probably much more like the accidental tourist you know what I mean <laughs> wandering around right. lost in the neighborhood and you know I keep finding the right bar that's kind of the story of my life I guess it's not a coincidence that it keeps you keep finding the right one though I don't think so in the sense that I, I feel like it, but a big part of it I just wrote a, or did a post the other day about the book, The Slight Edge. I don't know if you've read Slight Edge, Jeff Olson's book, but 
it's a tremendous book. And the thing that Olson says in the book is that show up, show up consistently, show up with a great attitude. And I think I've been able to do that in terms of I've showed up every day and I've been really consistent and I've had a really good attitude and I've been willing to, to just, I, you know, I can't even say take risks because I don't think they were risks. I never was really risking money. All I was, was really doing was investing my time in things. Even with the podcast, I remember Anthony Renner, 11 years we've been doing Strength Coach Podcast, which is to all of these other podcasts that are out there. And he, I remember him calling me up and saying, I want to do a Strength Coach Podcast, to which my obvious answer was, what is that? What's a podcast? <laughs> yeah. And and his thing was, they're going to be really big. This is the next thing. And I was like, what am I going to do? And he's like, I just have to interview for 20 minutes once a week. It's like, cool. I'm good. Let's go. And, and so I think, as I said, I've been very willing to invest sort of time and energy into the process of obviously making my own situation better. But in that process, making a lot of other people's situations better too. Mm-hmm. I can't believe 11 years ago, people knew what podcasts were. Because mm. yeah. even even when I started mine five years ago, yeah, it yeah. was, I remember speaking to someone the other day, was it was, do you want to come on? Say again? I said Anthony was an early adopter too. Anthony was one of these guys who I think also saw where things or where he thought things were going to go and was willing, again, to take a step in that direction. With kind of very much that, why not? Yeah, process. Yeah. So what? So what's next for it then? What is what is next for the the content, the media side of things on the website? Is there anything that you guys or anyone around you thinks would be the next step to invest a bit of time? That's an interesting question. I I don't really know, and that's I in some ways. That's, I guess, what we're all looking for, trying to figure out, gee, what is really going to be the next thing? Because one of the things with podcasts now is there's probably too many. And it's yes. very diluted, yep. and a lot of times everybody's getting the same the same guests. And so you might see somebody in a given month who, who's on four or five podcasts. And sometimes that's good if the interviewer is good. And sometimes that's not good if the interviewer is not as good. And I think you've been successful because, because you are a good interviewer and because you do kind of draw people into some good conversations, but, but I'm not sure. I think it's, it's interesting. I don't know where this goes next because there's obviously a huge tech interest that I think is going to wane because I think a lot of the coaches at least are starting to reject the tech in terms of it's just a lot of noise and, and not really a lot of meat, but I don't know if the management people will move away from that tech. So I think that's also I think we'll probably see uh, sort of a tech pushback now with coaches pushing back and saying, you're bogging us down with all this bullshit and making it harder for us to do our job because you're constantly asking us to to create metrics of things that don't matter. And as a result, you've got, you've got guys wasting huge amounts of time playing with technology. Are you seeing that now? Already, the coaches oh, yeah. are pushing back. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And because I think, but what happens is because the management people are getting more educated, you're seeing more, at least in America, more of these kind of Ivy League educated general managers 
and they love tech. They love the quantification of things, even if they're things that don't matter. Yeah. And I don't think coaches are as enamored. One of the things I had a conversation with a guy the other day and they said, I don't want phones in the weight room. I don't want apps. I would like machines that work simply that I can take in the room with me and use where I don't have to whip out an iPad and I don't have to drag a computer around. And, uh, and maybe that's just me. Maybe part of the problem is I'm the dinosaur who's on his way to extinction. I'm not sure. But I, I do think there is some conflict there in that tech area. It's interesting because I'm, I'm imagining that tech companies will go to them general managers knowing that they will be impressed with their tech but because they don't have to use it every single day. And that will get pushed down to the coach who does have to use it and maybe isn't that enamored with it. But the tech companies will go to the guy at the top, the general manager or whoever it is, because they're going to, like you say, quantify what people are doing, numbers, and they will be happy with that because that's a justification for hiring X or recruiting Y player or whatever that may be. It's interesting that I didn't realize that, yeah, that kind of thing, you, you, you saw that kind of thing over there with, with coaches pushing back from, from the guys above. Oh yeah, I think so. I think, I, I think it's a huge issue. And I think it's a huge issue too, because our staffs here are getting bigger but they're generally being supervised by people who don't really know what we do. So I think that's also problematic. I think there's a, sometimes now there's this big push that you have these people that are kind of directors of performance, but a lot of times those guys are PhDs and they're tech people or they're research people. And the reality is we are in the people business. Coaching is a people business. It is not a technology business. And I think when you try to look at it and think this isn't kind of robotics, this isn't Amazon where we can replace everybody picking this stuff off the shelves with robots. We still need really, really good people who can interact with really talented people, particularly in the professional sports world. And so I think, yeah, I think that's probably going to be, I, I think it'll be a consistent area of conflict in the next decade. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So I'm going to move on as this is something that is a very hot topic and will be probably for a long while to come. And this, this kind of thing will keep coming up. And it's the, the Chelsea Football Club manager um, piece in the press that came out, I don't know what paper it was over here, saying that he didn't do, the guys didn't do strength training because uh, you never see a guy running around with weights on the pitch. Classic football scenario where everyone kicks up a storm and gets all angry and aggressive. But I'd love to know, I mean, I know you've written on it and um, got involved in a little, bit of a, a little bit of a Twitter debate about it. I'd love to know your thoughts, firstly, on that. And then we'll just get into a little bit of a, a chat around, because I'm, I'm, I know, I'm not, I was going to say I'm guessing, but I know there's many people out there who are dealing with coaches like that, especially over here in, in, in football. I think it's getting better, but there's, there's still people dealing with that kind of thing and how coaches may handle that. So what's, what, was your initial, what was your initial thoughts? My initial thought is it's the classic, and as I said, it was. I remember I wrote in the Twitter, or actually I wrote an article because I couldn't get it all on Twitter. Again, because supposedly I'm a hockey guy, but years ago Wayne Gretzky, so the greatest hockey player in history, was quoted as saying something to the effect of, "When a weight scores a goal, I'll lift a weight," and and we struggled with that literally for the next decade because when somebody, and this is what I my point was, when someone in the position of power 
makes a statement that I would consider to be either unfounded and or just straight out ignorant, it doesn't matter because people believe it. And it's really damaging. And I don't think people realize how damaging it is to the profession, to the people sort of below you, because all someone is going to say is that Sari said that they don't lift weights at Chelsea and Chelsea is winning. Now, the reality is that there's a lot more nuance to that that lies under the surface. Somebody posted a video the next day of them doing rear foot elevated split squats with kettlebells on the pitch and said, are they not lifting weights? And, and so I, sometimes I think what happens is you have someone making statements about things with, uh, that they're really unfamiliar with. And I think what he probably was saying, if someone said to me, there used to be a guy, I don't know if you guys get Saturday night live over in, uh, England, but yeah, we do. Yeah. Subliminal man, and I think if Subliminal man was sort of talking underneath, sorry, he would say he means we don't do like stupid football kind of weights, like bench presses and deadlifts and squats. And you know what I mean. And, but he just said we don't. Yeah, yeah, yep. And and then he said, you know, we do natural body weight movements in the weight room, and you're kind of like, well, what does that really mean? And and sometimes I think what happens is there's also kind of an emperor's new clothes. Um, element to this because if you know you're working for someone who doesn't really understand then you may kind of I don't know whatever bend the truth stretch the truth and and say oh yeah we're only going to do like natural body weight movements like uh, the soccer people that I worked with I loved it when I worked with the women's Olympic team they loved you know we did one leg squats for ACL prevention and I was kind of like I like one leg squats better than two leg squats anyway so I'm (laughs) But you're looking, and then it was like, yeah, but I don't want to use the weights. Oh, no, no, don't worry about it. We'll just put little dumbbells in their hands or a weight vest on them. And we had women probably with 40 pounds of external load doing sets of 10 one-leg squats, which was really strong. But the, to the perception of the outsider who doesn't really understand, they see this sort of functional body weight movement and they're very comfortable. And the same way, like, oh, no, we won't do any bench presses. We're just going to do push-ups. And when they get good at push-ups, we'll have them put a weight vest on. And then when they get good at that, we'll put a plate on their back. And you're like, you, know, you feel like saying, all we did was turn the bench press upside down, kids, but you're not paying attention. And and that's really what goes on a lot is that there is this little sort of, I'm going to tell a little white lie or I'm going to kind of sort of do what I'm not supposed to do here because nobody's really paying attention. And, and that's that may very well be what goes on. The problem is the damage that's done by the statement because now you've got, and again, over here in the U S we really struggle to get our male soccer players to lift because they have this perception that the guys in the premier league don't lift weights. And, and there is, I think uh, that, that kind of, um, I don't know what the word is. Perception, I guess that, that these, guys are not doing this and the reality is different in terms of they are doing it and we know they're doing it we know they're doing it at Arsenal we know they're doing it at Liverpool we, we know that this is happening yet somehow some way somebody has kind of convinced uh you know Mr. General Public that that's not in fact the case and that trickles down to youth soccer that trickles down to all these other places because some guy will say well, you know, sorry, Chelsea's winning and sorry says they don't lift weights. And as a result, somebody <laughs> will justify their child 
not doing strength training. And you're kind of like, like, how did we get from, you know, sorry at Chelsea to your kid to begin with? And that was my, my Gretzky analogy. I'd have players, you know, Gretzky doesn't lift weights. And I used to say to him, yeah, when you get 160 points in the NHL, I won't make you do it either. <laughs> and it was sort of like, that was my conversation ender. Like, wait, you know, like, wait a second. You're, you know, you've got five goals in the American college system right now. And you've somehow gotten you and Gretzky in the same sentence. And, and that's the stuff that we deal with because, again, you'll get some youth coach who's suddenly bringing what they do at Chelsea into what should be done maybe in an academy program somewhere. And I'm sure all the academy guys cringe and go, oh, my God, you know, we're trying so hard to, to do the right thing here and to create good programming and to get these kids to the point where maybe they could play in the Premier League. And then we get a guy like this who comes out and it's like he, you know, it's like he trots out a Tyrannosaurus Rex in front of everybody. And people go, see, they're still dinosaurs. They still walk the earth. So I guess that, that, that's the struggle. Out of interest, what kind of is it in? Is the EPL or the perception of what the guys in the Premier League are doing, is that affecting other sports or just the kind of soccer vertical? Or is that having a real impact yes, on other, other sports as well? In our country, it just affects soccer. Yeah. Okay. Because we've got because it's there's very like solid cultures in place in the other major sports here. So it's yeah. obvious everybody knows that the baseball players live baseball. We always say baseball had the opposite problem. The baseball had a huge steroid problem, and it was like, okay, I guess lifting and getting strong matters because if lifting and getting strong didn't matter, we wouldn't have this big steroid problem that we had ten years ago. And obviously, American football it's it's never been a problem. And ice hockey, I think, over the last couple of decades has become very accepting now to the point where most of the NHL teams have added a full-time strength, you know, full-time assistant strength coach. So that's expanding versus contracting. Uh, NBA, same way. NBA has put much more emphasis on getting really good strength and conditioning people. And it just kind of hangs around in soccer. And And that's, I think, that's what makes it even that much more damaging from my perspective is that the fact that it does just hang around in soccer and that you are looking at it and thinking, okay, uh, we, we have a, an older guy who really, and from an educational standpoint, we talked about it offline, but his education is as a banker. <clears throat> so he really doesn't have probably the familiarity with the human body, even if he has tremendous familiarity with the game of soccer. And so as a result, when you get somebody like that who makes those kind of statements, even though they may not be qualified to make them, their position makes them qualified to make them. And it makes it so that people will look at that and think, hey, this guy, like, you know, he's the manager of Chelsea. He has to know what he's talking about. And I, I don't think in a lot of cases that's not necessarily true. So you've mentioned a couple of scenarios where people may skirt around this issue we've got coaches who are under the same mindset as sari but is there any other things that those maybe working in soccer over here who are struggling with that barrier of coaches that don't believe in what they what they believe to actually get done what they want to get done in a in a kind of roundabout way without getting the sack yeah you know i think it's a really difficult situation to be perfectly honest you have to it's a very political game in terms of you've got to be able to look at okay who's 
kind of who's above me, who's got my back, what am I going to get away with, what am I going to not get away with, and how far will they let this go before someone says, like I said, we got to get rid of this guy. And the problem that we run into, I think, as strength and conditioning coaches, and I, I put another tweet out a while ago, I said that the soccer people, if we could just stay away from sort of the American football, rugby type stuff, I think most soccer coaches would be fine or soccer managers. It's when they see heavy bars on guys' backs and guys doing heavy deadlifts or guys doing Olympic lifts that they get this sort of, I don't get how this helps us thing. And I can understand that. And because I don't do that stuff very much. And I probably would in soccer, at least we'd probably deadlift and Olympic lift in soccer. We don't squat anyway. If someone said you can do whatever you want. But at the same time, I think the way to do it, the biggest way to do it is you've got to, um, you got to kind of fight fire with fire and you've got to package it as injury prevention. And if you package it as injury prevention, suddenly now you've, you've kind of come in the back door because they can't look at you and say, oh, we don't have any injury problems. Because obviously, I mean, sportsman's hernia originated probably in English soccer and hamstring strains and all these other things. So when you can start to say to somebody, hey, we need to do this to keep our injury numbers down, suddenly that makes it a lot more palatable. But again, as soon as they see this sort of big, heavyweight American football sort of thing, they're going to run back to you and say, that doesn't look like injury prevention to me. That looks like American football weight training. And so I, I guess it's with management. And that's just, I think, the unfortunate reality that we get ourselves into when we get into these fields and when we're trying to create change in these areas that are slow to change. And I think soccer has been one of, in my mind, maybe the slowest to change. Because when you look at sort of major sports, when you think, hey, we've got guys now probably making, I guess, maybe the most money of any professional athlete are going to be in the international soccer world. And yet in some ways we may have some of the most backward training processes or thought processes. So it's pretty interesting. Mm. Why do you think that is? I think because it is not – it is by nature and that we got, we got alluded to the beautiful game thing. <laughs> it is in some effect a very skill-dominated sport still and that ability when, – when you watch a guy like Messi play, you look at Messi and think he's very small but he's pretty darn effective. And so <laughs> guys like that – and I hate to say it. I, I'm a huge Messi fan. But I think in some ways they hold the game back because people are expecting the next unicorn. You know, I talked about dinosaurs in one sense, but you look at Messi and think this guy's the unicorn in terms of he's so rare to be kind of a guy, you know, an undersized guy. And actually I've read some of the stories behind him, a guy who actually had a growth hormone deficiency and they, you know, they were just trying to get him big enough to even make the first team who then becomes one of the most dominant players in the world. And Everybody loves to point at the exception versus the rule. I always look at people and think, well, I'm a Christian Ronaldo guy because if you look at him, he looks like he's the yeah. poster child for training. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, he could be he could be some sort of fitness model if he decided that he was giving up the soccer thing. And so I would look at him and think, 
it's it's I guess the comparison, and you can kind of look at it in the NBA. There's guys being successful in the NBA that are really really super skinny and don't look like they touch a weight. Kevin Durant, it doesn't have a body of a weightlifter by any stretch of the imagination. And then you look at LeBron, and you realize LeBron James is a guy that looks like he lives in the weight room. And yeah. obviously they're both extremely dominant players, but I think what ends up happening is that everybody wants to go kind of with the person that validates their thought process. 100%. You know, if you're someone who doesn't like weightlifting, then you're a messy guy. Like messy, you know, yeah. messy does, look, <laughs> does right? And I'm always the same way. I'm like, hey, when you can play like that, if you if he if I'm at Barcelona and he says to me, I don't want to lift weights, I might have to be like, okay. No worries. You don't have to lift weights. Okay? And if anybody else says, why not? I'm going to say, because you're not as good as he is. And until you get better than him, when you're better than him, you can tell me what you want to do too. Because that's the reality of the professional sports world is that you're you're much more of a salesman than you are a dictator when you're in the strength and conditioning world in pro sports. So if yeah. I'm working with Messi, I have to convince Messi why what I want him to do is going to make him better. That's really what my job is. I have to convince him that I can make him faster. I have to convince him that I can make him jump higher. And I have to convince him that the things that I want him to do will make all those things happen. And that's not easy when you have someone who's already at the top of the food chain to, to look at him and think, I can make you better. And someone can look back at you and think, I'm the best in the world. How do you make that guy better? I've always believed that I could. And that's one thing. I've been a great salesman. I've never for a moment hesitated. I, I don't care who you gave me. I would look at that player and say, I can help you get better. Or at worst case, I can help you do it longer <laughs> and make more. And ultimately, because for a lot of these guys, when you get guys like that, you get that real top guy. It's really about legacy. And so uh, it is, it's, it, it's interesting, but I think that's the challenge of when you get to, to when you're working at the highest level, you have to realize that you're you're going to have a very unique set of challenges that are, are going to be very much unlike what other people are going to have to deal with. And I think that ability to be a salesman even becomes more prominent as you go up because you've got a lot more player power. You've got the guy that will say, I've got a World Cup medal at home. I'm not doing that because I got that without it type of situation. So I definitely think the salesman skill comes into uh, comes into into play a lot more as you move up the food chain, hundred percent. Well, it definitely does, and also, and so does culture, and so does management support, and so does realize yeah. you need to start at the bottom, and that's why if you start with your academy guys, because the other thing you realize is these guys aren't going to stay around forever. And and if you sometimes if you think okay, I'll, I live to fight another day, maybe I won't fight the battle with that guy, but I'm going to really work hard with the guy that wants his job. <laughs> yeah, and, no, hundred percent. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of psychology. Like, yeah, I mean, like, like over here with the with the movement of managers. If you've got like a Sari, for instance, I mean, he's pretty new in the summer, but he's like, the, what's the average of a Premier League manager? I don't know, nine months, twelve months. Like, if you've got that person who is working above you, or he's the manager of your team, and he doesn't agree with what your you want to do, the reality is that if you're a club member of staff and you're not attached to that manager, you're going to have someone else in a year anyway. So it doesn't make any difference. You might get someone worse, but you also might get someone better. So, yeah, interesting scenario. And a lot of it too, I think at that level, when I worked for the Bruins, I worked for, I think I worked for five coaches in 10 seasons or six coaches in 10 seasons. And um, 
and I was the same way. I realized my job is to work with the players because yep. the, the coach probably, like you said, next year he may not be here, but the players will be. Yeah. I think some of that, and as I said, we could talk about the psychology of this forever, but there really is a lot of psychology to getting guys to do what you want them to do. I had um, Daniel Sturridge, and Daniel didn't want to be, he was not an avid weightlifter either. But as you explain to them what it's going to do for them and you dose it correctly, you don't, again, I'm not going to ask him, I'm not going to say, I need you to put 400 pounds on your back. And, and he kind of came around. He was a guy who was very good and very compliant. And so I just think you, you, you also have to be able to look at, at each manager, at each player and realize that, like I said, how much, what you're almost thinking all the time, you're like a kid again. How much can I get away with here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when was that, Mike? When did he? When was he over? Was that a couple uh, of years ago? Two summers ago, and then for a little, for a couple weeks this summer. So the year he had his hip surgery, he was here all summer. He was here. Uh, probably would have been when I first did the, the first podcast, 2016. I think was the year he had his surgery, and uh, he was here from June to September. At, at Interesting. The, yeah. Just so was he? Did. The Liverpool people, are obviously the Red Sox. Of course, that's the link, yeah, of course. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Mike. I hope you enjoyed part one and a little discussion around the Chelsea manager's comments. So in part two, we discussed the rise of the trap bar and also something that really interests me. And it's always funny that when I chat to Mike, it's great to get his opinion because he's so honest on... Um, some of the more contentious issues in the industry so of course we go back to the speed ladder the agility ladder the ladder and get Mike's uh, opinion on where that could potentially fit in and where it also may not fit in so really interesting part two coming up um, which I'm sure you will hopefully love as much as part one but just before we do get into part two, I just want to say a massive thanks to Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. So Fatigue Science have exclusive access of the SAFT model, which is an algorithm developed by the US Army. And if you listen to my episode with Ian Dunican, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So the SAFT model analyzes a number of different factors in your sleep history to predict your fatigue for the day ahead. So the alertness score indicates fatigue predicted effects on your reaction time, your lapse index, your mental output, all, all things that are obviously essential for the performance that you're going to undertake that day. So as you can tell, it is much more than a sleep tracking device. However, it is a sleep tracking device, but not only does it track sleep, um, it considers the time you went to sleep, how well you slept, how much sleep debt you have, and even your local sunrise and sunset times. So a really impressive bit of kit is the ready band from Fatigue Science. So if you are interested in getting to know a little bit more about Fatigue Science, head over to their website, uh, fatiguesciencecom but also follow them on Twitter at Fatigue Science. So also sponsoring today's podcast is St. Mary's University. So St. Mary's is internationally renowned as a leader in strength and conditioning education, and it was the first UK institution to offer an undergraduate degree in strength and conditioning. And its master's program, which I have been through personally and would highly recommend, was the first part-time uh, distance learning strength and conditioning course in the UK. And it's the emphasis on the development of coaching skills and relevance of theory to practice which makes St Mary's stand out from the other courses that are out there. 
So both uh, undergraduate and postgraduate courses are delivered in the purpose-built state-of-the-art performance education centre and anyone that's been to St Mary's will know what a fantastic uh, facility that is and is taught by staff that are highly experienced coaches and expert sports scientists. And one thing that students are really on the lookout for now is universities' links with uh, professional sport, and that's definitely something that St Mary's has with their links with multiple football clubs across London in Chelsea, Crystal Palace, Fulham, but also uh, London Irish in rugby and Sutton Tennis Academy. They also embed students within the Royal Ballet Company and Royal Ballet, Royal Ballet School in London. And this obviously helps students top saying uh, necessary coaching experience to maximize their chances of getting employment post graduation. So in addition to the strength and conditioning courses, they offer both undergraduate and postgraduate programs in physiology and sports rehab. But if you're interested in getting to know more about the course at St. Mary's, make sure you visit their website, uh, which is stmary's.ac.uk forward slash courses. So over to part two with Mike. I hope you enjoy. So just moving away from the Chelsea situation, and this is something that I've been aware of, just, just scouring social media and seeing what, what people are posting, what is the cool thing, what's not the cool thing. And it's interesting because Simply Faster put something out this morning um, about back squats. Obviously, we went through that last time, so anyone that's interested can get part one. But the rise of the trap bar which has really interested me because anyone that's putting anything on, on Instagram by the looks of it to me is either trap bar deadlifts or trap bar jumps. And it'd be just interesting to get your thoughts on that, on that exercise and why people, I mean, I might be completely wrong and completely going off on a tangent and no one agrees with me, but it just seems that that has become the cool, new cool thing. And just get your opinion on, on that as an exercise and, and why that might have happened and if that's a positive shift or a negative shift. Um, I would say that you're correct, and I would say that it is a positive shift. We'll deal with trap bar jumps. Actually, no, we'll go trap bar deadlifts first, I guess. What I really saw, going back to in 2009 when we had stopped squatting, um, we still were deadlifting. Uh, although we had never deadlifted with a straight bar, I really, I became very enamored of the, the trap bar because I felt like it accommodated for a lot of different styles of picking weights up. And, and I became a fan based on, uh, there's a track coach named, um, oh my God, he's Allison Felix's coach. Barry Ross is the guy's name. Allison Felix is a great American sprinter, 200 meter sprinter. And one of the things that he said in his book was that deadlifts make more sense than squats when you don't have a lot of time because deadlifts work more muscles than squats. And he went on to say that you get upper back musculature and you get a lot of hand and you know grip and things like that that you don't get from squatting. And I read that and thought, you know, he's right. As much as I'm not a deadlift fan, he's absolutely right. If I'm looking for one exercise, really a total body exercise, it's a better total body exercise because it's going to give me obviously – Lots of the benefits that squats give me, but I'll get that sort of upper back trapezius rhomboid, and then I'm going to get the, the grip strength and kind of the irradiation idea if you're buying into that idea from a rotator cuff. There's just a lot more bang for your buck to deadlifting. So we went back to deadlifting when we never had before, and I think lots of other people have. The other thing that we found, and this is was sort of accidentally, I realized that we weren't getting a lot of back pain with deadlifting. Yet we were with squatting, and that didn't 
that seemed a bit incongruent to me initially because I came from a powerlifting background. And one of the things I realized is that in powerlifting, in a meet, nobody deadlifts well. They deadlift to lift the most weight that they can. And a lot of times when you're at a meet, I would I would go so far as to say 80 or 90% of the deadlifts that you see are pretty darn ugly. And because people just don't care. The idea, no one says how, they just say how much. They look at it and think, okay, did, it, did you get it from A to B? If you did, you get credit for the lift. And if that means you background it or whatever, no one cares. And so that was my sort of deadlift baggage that I carried around with me for 20 years. But when I realized when I started everybody deadlifting again, I said, I'm going to just make them all deadlift right. So we're going to, we're only going to do perfectly done deadlifts. We're not going to do any ugly deadlifts because we don't need to worry about how much really we need to worry about how much we can do correctly, but not how much the net result of that was less back pain than we got from squatting. And that kind of led me to this Stuart McGill idea of flexion moments. And so what I started, because I'm sitting there kind of scratching my head thinking, why is it that an exercise that I look at that should be harder on your back, deadlifting, than squatting, for us, seems to be being easier on our backs? And what I realized was that the back probably doesn't, dislikes extension. So when you take, uh, you know, extension and compression, back squatting, you put a bar on your back and you have to sort of arch your back and hold the bar in that position. Back doesn't really love that and as a result can react negatively to that. But when the bar is in your hands, instead of this axial loading kind of compressive force where you have to balance an extension, you're actually being pulled into flexion. You're experiencing a flexion moment, even though you may not be flexing. And as a result, you're producing extension moments to counter that. And I think the net result of that is less back stress. So I think that's part of what led to people adopting trap bar. Then the trap bar jump thing is interesting because we just started doing that this summer. And uh, I wrote an article about that the other day on my strengthcoach.com site. And Devin McConnell, one of my uh, former interns, who's a very great strength and conditioning coach himself, I said, I don't know whose idea it was. He said, I think you got it from me. And so I'm going to give Devin the credit because I'm not sure. I'm not sure who I saw trap bar jumping, but I know I thought, hmm, I think we should try this because we were doing a lot of kettlebell swings with our guys who couldn't Olympic lift. But I felt like kettlebell swings, you get to a certain point in time where you swing in a, a 32 kilo kettlebell and you really probably can't swing a heck of a lot more than that and feel good about it. So we started playing around with trap bar jumps. Then we started playing around with this idea of, okay, what's the right load for a trap bar jump? And in my mind, I said, because we were seeing absurd recommendations where people were saying things like, uh, you know, use 50% of their deadlift. Now I got a guy who can deadlift 450 pounds. That means I want him jumping with a hundred kilos basically on the bar. I was like, that's not going to happen for me. So what we did is we said, well, let's take it as a percentage of their best vertical jump. And I initially started out with the idea of I'm going to load them with a load that lets them jump 80% of their best vertical jump. I, for no particular reason except that seemed to, to make sense to me. 
And so we started playing around with that idea. Then I started taking J.B. Marin's research on speed development. And one of the things he had said was that with weighted sleds, you basically wanted the weight, the sweet spot for weight on the sled was a weight that made you run 150% of your best time for the same distance. So for us, if I run a 1.510, that means I want a weight on the sled that's going to make me run 2.25 seconds for 10 yards to make it simple. So then we took that and said, okay, that means we could go to 66% of the best vertical jump. And so we started playing with that and we kind of settled at 70. So I think what you end up with, with trap bar jumping is a very, very acceptable alternative to Olympic lifting that anybody can do. It is a zero skill exercise. Uh, The only, the biggest problem that you run into is that the bars are 20 kilos or 45 pounds. And that, um, that may be too heavy if you have smaller, lighter athletes. That's probably, to, that's the only drawback that we've found. And I mean, I really have fallen in love with it. And I think it's one of those things that everybody who tries it will also fall in love with it because they'll look at it and think, wow, this is really simple and it works. And when you can find stuff in the weight room that's really simple and works, you got to go with it. So have you, have you replaced um, kettlebells or Olympic lifts or just kettlebells for the um – with the trap bar jumps? Uh, probably a little bit of both. Uh, I think we've re- we've replaced. So the, one of the things, because with our pro hockey guys, I love Olympic lifts, but I think when you get guys coming back for three months who haven't Olympic lifted, I'm not a huge fan of trying to teach them to Olympic lift. And at the same time, if I get guys who come in, new guys who come in and say, I have done Olympic lifts, and then I see them, and I don't think they're good Olympic lifters. So as a result, we have a very few guys. If we had 20 pros this summer... I would bet that three or four Olympic lifted out of 20. Whereas in my college team, if I had 20 guys, 20 of them would have Olympic lifted. So we're substituting in swings and trap bar jumps. And and I would say now more trap bar jump than swing. Just because with swing, I felt like we were were just looking. And I I can't say I, I didn't dislike it, but I never really loved it. And with trap bar jump, I'm in the total opposite camp in terms of I really, really like it. I just think it's such a good idea. What's the athlete reaction being? Really good. Because I think nobody likes to struggle with learning to Olympic lift. And that's where, again, I think I always feel like Olympic lifting is a great thing to start with young kids with because they really like it and they enjoy it. But I think when you get an older athlete who's got some miles on them and maybe has some elbow or wrist or shoulder or whatever or back, issues they may not take to it the same way whereas trap bar jump no issues with elbows no issues with wrists no issues with shoulders and really minimal issues with backs as long as you keep the loads appropriate and don't do anything dumb like try to do it based on percentage of their deadlift max which just isn't to me very smart Cool. So next topic, slightly more controversial and something that keeps coming up all the time, which I, I do enjoy when it comes up, is the um, the the discussion around ladders and whether they're speed ladders, whether they're just ladders, whether they're agility ladders, just ladders is fine. But um, do they fit Do they fit anywhere at your place? Yeah, we, we use them twice a week. I love the ladder. I don't understand. It's very interesting in terms of, why I don't know why it causes such a visceral reaction in some people because 
it's one of those things where I always talk about it's a tool. And for us, it's a tool to get some multi-planar warm-up to teach some deceleration skills. And five minutes, twice a week, no big deal. We never talk about it as a speed ladder. I don't have any illusions that it will make you faster or that it will make you more agile by getting – it's not like the faster you get at the ladder, the better you'll get at the sport or any of that stuff. But I do think when you're talking about warm-up and you want to move people kind of in the frontal and transverse planes – it can be really effective warm-up. I think when you're talking about warm-up and you want people to experience kind of single-leg decelerative skills, it can be really effective. So I I really struggle with the huge negative to it, but almost everybody who's negative, one, I love the fact, I hate ladders, we never do them. I'm like, well, did you ever do them? <laughs> do you know I mean? like, like, can you really, it's kind of like I hate broccoli, I've never eaten it. And you're thinking, well, you don't really know that you hate it if you've never eaten it. And I think with the latter, I think because you watched a video of some guy kind of doing the Michael Flatley Lord of the Rings thing in the latter, you know, and that made you bristle, that doesn't necessarily make it a bad tool. And I guess that's the biggest thing. So we use it, but we don't – I guess we use it, yet we have no unrealistic expectations for what it's going to do. And we don't use it for any incredible length of time. We, I just see it as a cool multiplanar warm-up tool. Mm-hmm. So in, term, in terms of the specifics of what you're actually doing with it exercise-wise, can you explain what, what that looks like? So for us, so we might do uh, uh, one drill. Some people call it icky shuffle, which again, I mean – I think it's really funny because it's based on this old football player, Icky Woods, who's probably 50 years old for God's sake now. And it was his touchdown dance in the NFL, but it's sort of a two in one out kind of drill. So it's two feet in the ladder, one out. We do a lot of that. What we would call, we call it shuffle wide and stick. And we want someone to think, you know, two feet in the ladder out wide on one leg, two feet in the ladder out wide on the other leg. So that we're working on those breaking skills on decelerated skills. I love to be able to talk to kids and it's a hockey term. But I think it's really applicable to teaching people ankle injury prevention, kind of inside edge and outside edge of their feet. So we want kids starting to experience what the inside edge of their shoe is and why they should be landing on the inside edge versus the outside edge. We always think if you're inside edge, you never roll your ankle when you're trying to put the brakes on. If you're outside edge, you're probably going to roll your ankle. So I think it allows you to kind of teach that idea of kind of weight bearing and deceleration and what people might call shin angles. I don't really like to talk about shin angles as much as edges of the feet because I think shin angle is really a result of the edge of the foot, not vice versa. And uh, and in the same way, we'll teach crossover because I think a big part of crossover is actually cross under, the ability to use the under leg because you don't really cross over, you push under. Like someone was, you know, when you talk about a, a crossover maneuver is really a push under maneuver. And so we can use the ladder to teach that push under. And we'll do kind of, we call them crossover and stick. So that's kind of a one, one leg, you know, drive hard on that inside leg, drive yourself into the ladder. One foot touches in the ladder, two feet touch outside the ladder. So everything is very specific in terms of, I always think about it as planes. So those like shuffle, widen, stick, crossover and stick, those are frontal plane exercises. So on days when I want to do change of direction, I would like to get some frontal plane warm up prior to that. And I'll use the ladder for that. 
And in the same way, then you can get into some of the the crossover, cross in front, cross behind to get some transverse plane stuff, you know, to get people moving their feet, moving their hips, much like, you know, you could just do karaoke if you wanted to. But for me, you know, we could do kind of cross in front, cross behind in the ladder. I do think, especially for younger kids, it's it's a really good kind of brain to muscle activity because you'll be amazed how many people struggle with learning these combinations. And I look at that and think, well, that's good. If they're struggling, then these drills are being beneficial because we're getting them to have to think a little bit about what they're, how they get messages from their literally head to their toes. Do you do all the, all the way up the chain in terms of ages? Or do you yep. stick, yeah, stick we use them. I love yeah, them with our older clients because I think yep. that the older clients, you know, now you think it totally outside the realm of sort of, you know, your podcast, but these are people that fall. So when you start thinking with older clients and starting to do these sort of single leg activities where they have to move in the frontal plane or move in the transverse plane, I think they're tremendously beneficial, probably more beneficial in the older population and in the younger population. Because again, for kids, I think they're great coordination drills. Much like people say like jump rope is or like anything. I mean, you're trying to get kids to, again, I always think with kids, I always talk about trying to get the wires to touch. And sometimes with kids, you look and think, ah, the wires don't touch on that kid. He can't quite get what I want him to get. <laughs> and, and I think the ladder sometimes helps us to, to connect those wires a little bit to, to sort of tune up the nervous system. Nice. Well, I mentioned that I'd, um, well, I promised that I'd, I'd keep it to an hour, so I'm just a little bit conscious of time. But where can um, where can people get more information? I know you've mentioned strengthcoach.com. Is that still the best place? Strengthcoach.com Yes, for me, because that's something that I kind of focus on every day in terms of if I'm yeah. writing, I'm posting it there, and I'm trying to answer questions there. If I get good questions, even from outside the site, I tend to post them there. So it's sort of become the central hub for me to be able to interact. And podcast still going strong? Podcast is going awesome, yes. they're Excellent. Uh, it's all good. So that's so perfect. So what's your what's – your, um, Twitter handle, Mike. What's the best place? Um, Mboyle1959 is my Twitter. And then you've got Body by Boyle as well? Yeah, Body by Boyle is our business one, but the Mboyle1959 okay. is mine, which will tend Perfect. to – the Body by Boyle one will tend to get more retweets of stuff that I will tend to tweet out myself. I don't really tweet on that one. Somebody else usually will be okay. kind of – sweet. Re- Superb. Well, thank you very much for the last 50 minutes. Always great to chat. Really appreciate you coming on for a part two. And um, yeah, thanks again and keep in touch. Thank you very much. Keep up the good work. I love listening. So I I enjoy it and I'm very honored to be a guest. Thanks, Mike. Really appreciate it. See you, mate. All right. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to episode 216 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So firstly, massive thanks to Mike for giving up his time for a part two and been, as always, so open and honest with his opinion. Secondly, massive thanks to Fatigue Science, to I Measure You, to Hawking Dynamics and to St. Mary's University for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run its current form without those great sponsors. So some really good guests coming up over the next couple of weeks. Leading up to Christmas, uh, some really cool guests from, um, from Europe from the UK and also from Australia. So make sure you press subscribe on your chosen podcast player and I will chat to you next week.